Welcome to Sharing the Magic, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the enchanting worlds of Disney. Each week, we're joined by a special guest. Whether they're a magician creating moments of astonishment or a Disney expert sharing the secrets behind the magic of the happiest place on earth. Together, we'll uncover the stories, inspirations, and behind-the-scenes tales that bring these worlds to life. So, get ready to be spellbound and transported to a place where dreams come true. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sharing the Magic. I am your host, your ghost host, Barry. And tonight we have uh, another guest joining us. He is a author as well as historian, and we will uh, meet him in just a moment. But first, let's meet our cast tonight. Tonight we have the Disney dad himself, Matt. Matt, how's it going? I am doing great, Barry. I'm very excited to speak with our guest tonight. I'm glad to be on. I'm ready to talk a little Disney. The I'm a teacher, so we have that Thanksgiving break come up. So it's a perfect way to start my week. I have two days of work, and then I'm off for the holiday. So I'm excited to go. Great. All right. And we have the Disney mom herself, Lisa. Lisa, how's it going tonight? Hi. I am I am pleasantly surprised at our turn of weather here in Indiana, um, but constantly dreaming of Disney. I see all of the, the decorations and parades and everything. So I'm... Kind of bummed I'm not at Disney for this holiday, but I'm hopeful that I will be the next. Yeah, I'm constantly bummed that I'm not at Disney. I think I listen to more Disney music on my um, listening devices than any other music. And my kids think I'm weird about that. But <laughs> Hey, it's not a bad thing to be weird about. There's no. things. <laughs> you know, I could be listening to Marilyn Manson. You know, there is a difference. All right, we'll we'll jump right into this. Um, again, our guest is an author, and he is also a Disney historian. And I am very excited to hear all about what he has written and why he wrote these books and what the what the end game is, what what he was looking when he was writing these books. So I am happy to announce Didia Guess as our guest tonight. Didia, how you doing? I'm doing great, Barry. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. And I ask each and every guest the same question each week. So how did you find your love of all things Disney? So it's a long story, which I'm going to try and make as short as possible. But uh, basically, I was uh, born in Paris uh, and I grew up in Paris, as you can probably hear from my accent. And um, when I was a kid growing up, uh, really, I first discovered Disney not through animation, cartoons, but through uh, comic books, uh, because that's where um, that's where people in Europe, uh, outside of the UK or Spain, but mostly in France, Germany, Italy, that's where you discover Disney characters. It's in comic books. And so I grew up uh, reading the Mickey Mouse magazine in France, the Journal de Mickey. Uh, and uh, that, that, that was my first 3D exposure to Disney characters. And then, um, and then I realized obviously that, um, that there was a big part of Disney, which was animation and uh, 
so Pinocchio and Snow White and so on. That's where my parents took me to the cinema to, to see all of that. Uh, and I just absolutely love them. Uh, but then when I grew up, uh, when I became a teenager, I realized, you know, there are those incredible artists who are doing all of this. And I wonder if I could learn more about them. And so I started reading every single book that had been written about Disney and, and translated in French. Uh, and there weren't that many. And so that actually pushed me to improve my, my English. Um, but then I was also very lucky because the, the Walt Disney Studios in the, uh, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s, opened a subsidiary near Paris. And I was like, whoa, that's really interesting. Uh, I wonder if I could uh, go and meet some of those artists. And by then I was a teenager. I think I was about 16 or 17. Um, and I contacted the studio in Paris. And I said, I'm, I'm writing articles for an American magazine called Animation Magazine. Of course, Animation Magazine had never heard of me before. And I said, um, I, would, I would love to interview um, the heads of the, of the studio, um, the Britsy brothers. And uh, they said, well, you know what? Yes, why not? Uh, come, on, come on over and uh, they'll be happy to, uh, uh, to see you and for you to interview them. Uh, and so I did. Uh, I uh, interviewed the Britsy brothers who... Uh, then became really famous for the sequence in the Hunchback of Notre Dame with Frollo and um, in front of the fire, and also um, uh, one of the sequences in, uh, in Fantasia 2000 of the Firebird. Um, and so I interviewed them at, at the time, and the interview was absolutely eye-opening for me, absolutely fascinating. And I thought, whoa, I would love to interview more artists in the future because this is really, really fascinating. Oh, and, and the, 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 the end of that part of the story is that I then got a friend of mine to translate the interview to English, uh, because again, at the time, my English wasn't good enough to do that by myself. Uh, and I sent that interview to uh, Animation Magazine, and they said, oh, wow, this is great. We were just uh, thinking that we wanted to release something about the opening of the French subsidiary, uh, and this is perfect, so we'll run your interview. Uh, and so that was my first published interview in in any magazine. Um, so so that was really fun. And then from there it grew. Uh, since the studio had opened in Paris, other big Disney artists started coming from the U.S. to to France. Uh, and I had the chance to interview Andreas Deja, uh, who is now a Disney legend and who who is the animator of um, Jafar and Scar and uh, King Triton and, and quite a few other uh, really uh, uh, extremely important Disney characters, and then Glenn Keane, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And so that's how it started in terms of interviews. And then I'll just give you one more story, which is the way it started in terms of book writing. And so at some point, after releasing quite a lot of uh, articles, interviews, and so on and so forth, I was contacted by a, a French guy uh, who loved Disney, a person called Alain Lité. And he said, uh, Didier, I, I know you love Disney, and I, I, love, I know you love the Disney parks. And that was around, I think, 1998, uh, when uh, Disneyland Paris was only six years old. And he uh, contacts me and he says, have you ever thought of working on a book about the making of Disneyland Paris? Um, because nothing like that had been released at the time. And I'm like, no, but obviously I would love to do that. He says, well, uh, if you do that, I will uh, create a publishing, uh, publishing house and I'll release the book. 
And I said, okay, let's uh, let, let's do it. And so it took us uh, two years to get the approvals from Disney to go and conduct the interviews with the Imagineers. And then I conducted interviews with 75 of the Imagineers who had worked on the creation of Disneyland Paris, spent a year um, writing the book. Uh, and then I thought, okay, okay well, this is, this is the, uh, the end of the process. Now it's just a question of getting the book published. Uh, well, it took then two more years for Disney to give us the approvals to release the book. So four years of approval in total for one year of writing the book. <laughs> and then the book was finally released. Um, so it was released for the 10 years of Disneyland Paris in 2002. Um, and, uh, and it's uh, at Disneyland Paris from sketch to reality. And it's a massive art book uh, about the, the creation of Disneyland Paris and, and how uh, the whole thing uh, came together. And so that was the first book that, that, I, that I published. So when you found your way in, able to do these interviews, how was it interviewing these people? I mean, the, these are some some big name people that you were interview, and you walked right in there and did an interview. I mean, for me, I, I'd probably be very, very nervous. So did they eventually find out that, you know, you weren't who you said you were, or did, did they just let it slide and just did the interview anyways? Well, for the first interview with the Bridgie brothers, no, they never uh, realized that uh, I wasn't really working for Animation Magazine, and they just enjoyed being interviewed, and then uh, that went really well. And then by the time I went to interview the Imagineers uh, in, in Glendale, um, I had conducted quite a lot of interviews before that, uh, and so I knew, uh, I knew how to prepare to conduct those interviews, and I had prepared in depth um, before going there. Uh, and then what I can say is two things. First, it was absolutely exhausting uh, because don't forget, I was still living in Europe. And so uh, I couldn't spend that much time in Los Angeles. Uh, it was very costly. And so uh, I had a limited amount of time. And so I would conduct interviews from very early in the morning to very late at night. And uh, it was interview after interview after interview with almost no lunch break and so on and so forth. And I was fascinated. I just loved it. And then you would go back to the hotel and you would have to label the tapes and so on because it wasn't set in digital format. It was still those physical cassettes uh, that, that uh, uh, I was using. Um, but then there were really some, some incredible moments. Like uh, I would have this interview with Tony Baxter, um, who had supervised the whole creation of the whole of Disneyland Paris. And the interview would, would take place at the end of the day. And it was supposed to be a one-hour interview. And Tony being Tony and me being as, as passionate as I was, uh, the interview would last for three, four, five hours. And wow. he wouldn't stop talking and I wouldn't stop asking questions. And uh, we would get get way off topic and think, talking about things that weren't related to Disneyland Paris. But we both loved it. And so uh, and it, was, it was just great. That's awesome. I was going to ask a very similar question. If you've ever been like, starstruck with all the people that you've interviewed and all the research and the books that you've written has there ever been one where you were just like you know I, I would say fanboying like where you're like oh my god I can't believe I'm talking to this person like was that was that Tony Baxter was that somebody else or did you just get so good at these interviews it was like all right it's time to go now if I have to name one it would definitely be Tony Baxter he would be at the top of my list and then after that um, people who worked with Walt uh, closely, um, 
uh, those would would be others that that I would be quite a bit starstruck to to an extent. Um, but then you want to make sure that that doesn't get in the way. You want to make sure that you're you're still so focused that you preserve all of the memories and preserve them when there is time to do that. Uh, there, there's one example of one interview that I con conducted with a with an artist who had worked with Walt called Ray Aragon. And um, Ray had worked at the studio, especially in the 1950s. And I conducted a first interview with Ray, uh, which lasted about two hours. And uh, he was in great shape. He was giving me a fantastic interview. And uh, um, by the end of the interview, I realized, you know, I need uh, another session of about two hours. Uh, and I was very, very busy at the time with my actual job. And uh, I, I sort of kept pushing the time where I would, would conduct the interview. And then at some point I said, Didier, you, you can't do that. You need to focus and, and just find the time to conduct the second part of the interview, which I did. And so I interviewed Ray for another two hours. And again, wonderful interview with great stories and so on and so forth. Seven days later, he was gone. Seven days later, he was gone. So if I had waited just a little bit longer, all of those interviews would have been lost. And that's the opportunity that he got to share his story and his work with you, unfortunately, a week before he passed away. So that's, I, I understand why that sticks out to you. Is there is there anybody that you haven't had the opportunity to interview that you would like to? Is there like that person that you're like, I really want to talk to this guy about Disney? Sure, there, there are quite a few, uh, quite a few who are actually related to the parks. Uh, there's a person called Orlando Ferrante, uh, was one of the top, top Imagineers, and uh, he unfortunately doesn't grant interviews. Um, for some reason, I think he has been burnt in the past with some interviewers or something like that, and he's, he's not open to getting interviews, so he would be one of them. There are a few others, uh, there are a few others, um, but maybe one day, we'll see. Uh, importantly, they are not getting younger, so it's uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, Dick Nunes, Dick Nunes would, would would have been one that I would have loved to interview, but again, uh, not one who is open to give any interviews. So, right. okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot here. You're sitting across from Walt Disney, and he looks at you, and he wants to know what your views of Disneyland Paris is. What would you say on that? Well, that he would be very proud of it, uh, that it's a beautiful park and that it has an amount of detail and care for the story and the storytelling and, uh, and the experience of the, uh, of the, of the guests, which, uh, um, at least at the time was in parallel. Uh, and so, um, I would just tell him that he would be very proud of it and uh, that uh, it's a wonderful way for uh, people in Europe, uh, to, get a closer connection to, to Disney than they were able to before the park opened. That uh, people in Europe always felt that Disney characters were not American characters, that they were characters that they were part of our own culture. Uh, and that finally having a park in the middle of Europe um, was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for the whole of Europe to be able to uh, uh, to get that closer connection that you have in the U.S., but that we didn't in Europe at the time. Okay, so you wrote the the one set of book on the Disneyland of Paris. Tell us about the other books you you've written. Sure. So after writing uh, the book on Disneyland Paris, I started a series of books called Walt's People, 
And once people, the idea there was to say, a lot of Disney historians have conducted interviews uh, with a lot of Disney artists, be they in animation or be they um, Imagineers. And some of them started conducting those interviews in the 1960s and early 1970s. And those, histori those historians were not getting younger. And I thought, you know, we need to preserve those interviews. We need to make sure that they, um, that they are released in book form so that future historians can get access to the raw research. And so I started conducting all of those historians and, and telling them about that project. And I was surprised to hear that a lot of them were very open to the idea. And so some of the best historians like Michael Barrier and, and John Canemaker and uh, John Culhane and so on said yes. And they, they started contributing their interviews to the Walt's People series. And there are now 28 volumes released to date. It's more than 10,000 pages of interviews. And that ensures that those interviews are really preserved in the best possible form, the most stable for future generations of historians who need access to those interviews if they want to write serious books about Disney history. And then after starting that book series, which frankly at the time, I, I never knew it would, it would run for more than 28 volumes. Uh, if I had known that at the time, I, I don't know if I would have had the, the courage to even start on the process <laughs> that crazy. A few years after that, I was contacted by the daughter of Walt Disney, Diane Disney Miller, um, whom I had met a couple of times before. And uh, she said, Didier, I have a question for you. I have this photograph of Walt Disney and of the cinema Louis Lumiere. And I don't know much about this. I, in fact, I don't know anything about where that photograph was taken and what it's about and why they met and so on and so forth. Do you know anything about that? And I told Diane, in all honesty, at the moment, I don't, but I'm going to research it. This is a great challenge. So uh, I'll, find, I'll find more about it for you. I'll find something about it for you. And so I started researching that photograph. And I quickly realized, you know, that photo was taken in 1935 in Paris uh, when Walt visited Europe with his wife, Lillian, uh, and with his brother and, and his wife. And, um, and so then I got curious about that trip to Europe because, of course, being born in Paris, that, that uh, um, I was very uh, much up my alley. And so... Uh, I started researching the trip and trying to find out everything that had been written about that trip until now, everything we knew. And what I realized is something that I would realize over and over again in the years to come, which is that a lot of what had been written about that trip actually was inaccurate. Was It was full of myth. It was full of legends. It was full of information that was badly interpreted and that had been recycled and re-recycled and every time it was recycled it would lose even more of its accuracy and i thought you know let's try and find what the real story is let's try and find out if walt disney during that trip to europe really met with benito mussolini let's try and find out if he uh, really received this specific award from um, from the league of nations let's try and find out where he went who he met what he really did during the trip and why he went there. And I was lucky enough that I, uh, I speak and read fluently, obviously French, but also Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian. 
Uh, and so, and I was helped also uh, by some people who uh, can read German. And so I was able to dig into all of those archives from all around Europe and to gather all of the material that no one had really focused on before. And uh, with the help also of Diane Disney Miller, with the help of the Disney archives and so on and so forth, I was really able to reconstruct the true story of that whole trip. And to find out that no, Walt Disney had not met Benito Mussolini, although he had met the rest of Benito Mussolini's family. And it took me a year and a half of research to finally, finally uh, get the proof of all of that. And that the medal of the League of Nations was not a medal from the League of Nations. Um, and to get the full story around that and how the rumor started, uh, literally right during the trip. And, and to finally have the full story, not just of that trip, but also the events surrounding it. And that meant also how Disney expanded in Europe in the 1930s when they established their, their subsidiaries, who was running those subsidiaries, and, and how the whole business expanded in Europe at that time. And so that was really fun. And, and that was really the first work of really in-depth research, the, the first work where when that was completed and released, people said, oh, you know what? This guy is doing uh, research a little bit like Indiana Jones. He's finding stuff <laughs> that uh, no one knew even existed. And so uh, so that was really fun. And, and that gave, gave me the will to uh, carry on doing way more of that. Okay, so now I understand why there's, for those of you listening, you can't see this. But Diddy, I see the fedora and the whip hanging behind you. So that's why, because you're technically Indiana Jones. <laughs> but you so you Indiana Jones of Disney history. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you mentioned it. Uh, you said the Disney archives. And I mean, Walt's people, that series is like your own, basically your own Disney archive where you're keeping all of these, you're keeping this history alive, right? And I love that as a history teacher. I love hearing that. Other people love history and they want it to be there for future generations. You said how many how many volumes are there right now? Twenty eight. Is is it done or are there more, Didier? Oh no. Uh, so volume twenty nine uh, is about to be released in just a few months. I uh, have gathered all of the material for volume thirty, and I've started gathering a lot of material for thirty one to thirty five. So there, there are wow. still quite a few volumes to come. Yes. Is this done chronologically? Is that how you break it up, or do you? How do you break up the volumes? That one is not. That's not a series that's done chronologically. Uh, okay. That's not actually a series that has any specific logic to it in terms of okay. what's included. It really um, focuses on just interviews with Disney artists, and uh, usually. Each volume, yes, is organized chronologically. The series isn't, but each volume okay. starts with artists who worked at the studio in the 1920s or 30s, and then uh, carries on until even artists who worked at the studio just a few years ago. And and to be honest, I never really know what's going to be in the next volume, uh, because believe it or not, even though I've now been releasing those volumes for close to 20 years, there's still new material that comes to the surface that I did not know existed. Uh, and so it's really fun. I just discovered uh, uh, a lost autobiography uh, just a few days ago. And uh, uh, it's from one of the artists who worked on the, the series of the people and places. Um, and, and so a very, very obscure 
part of Disney history, but it's a fascinating document yeah. and it's uh, it's going to be released in the future volume of the series. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, like, how do you find uh, this is this is the history teacher and me geeking out a little bit. Like, how do you find the the research? Like, how do, do does do people bring it to you? Do you just go hunting for it? Like, how do you get this stuff that nobody else seems to be able to get? So this is the most fun part of the whole process. You usually find uh, the uh, the documents uh, in um, three or four places, four or five places, I would say. One is the obvious one, which are the Disney archives. Okay, that's an obvious right. one. That's usually not for Walt's people. That's usually for uh, the other books I work on. The second one is the family of the artists who work for the studio. Right. Uh, and so that's really important uh, for me to go and contact those families, track them down first, and then contact them and find out what they have. And a lot of times, they don't even know what they have, and you have to help <laughs> them and probe them and convince them to go and look. And then they come back and they say, well, I did find a little bit. And then you realize, well, if they found that little, little bit, they might have a little bit more. And so you push and probe and nudge, and then they find way more. And yeah. then you finally have this huge box of amazing material that comes to the surface. So that's the second source. The third source is that, uh, especially here in the US, you're lucky enough to have a lot of libraries uh, in colleges, in universities all around the U.S. Uh, that preserve really important documents uh, from celebrities, from institutions, from companies, and so on and so forth, who donated their papers to those, to the, those libraries. And if you know how to look, especially now with all of those online tools that are at our disposal, well, you can find a lot of really, really great stuff. And then finally, obviously, all of the historians who conducted research before me uh, in their archive are lots of treasures that, frankly, uh, if I didn't have access to those treasures, I would be missing key pieces of the big jigsaw puzzle. Uh, and so that's the, the fourth really key source of material. And I, I kind of get where you're saying, you know, the, the Indiana Jones of, you know, Disney history, because you are really you're digging up all of these these relics that we might not get because you are you're willing to. You know, sometimes people might feel a little awkward pushing and prodding and asking like, hey, you shared this. What about this? Do you have something like this? And that's what really seems to get, especially like you said, with the families, they often don't even know what they have. And then because you're there and you're willing to help them do that, it, it brings it to everybody else. Before I, I know I'm hogging this up because I am geeking out a little bit about the history and the research part is can you share any single story of like where you found something that you were just like oh my god i found this that just like sticks out in your mind sure i'll i'll share two stories actually um okay. when i was uh, researching uh, one of the volumes of they drew as they pleased i um, got in touch with the family of a person called sylvia holland so sylvia holland was uh, a very important concept artist at disney in the late 1930s and early 1940s and she was even about to become the first uh, female director at, at the studio. And that did not happen uh, for two reasons, the strike in 1941 and then union trouble in, uh, in 1946. But I was researching her career and her art. And so I decided to contact her daughter, 
who was in her 90s at the time. And uh, her daughter said, yes, absolutely. Next time you're in Los Angeles, come over and uh, we'll look at uh, the material from my mother that I preserved. And so I went there and uh, she said, well, I've, I've prepared everything. It's in a, in a closet here. And so I opened the closet and she's like, you have the correspondence here and you have artwork here. And so I look at the correspondence, I'm blown away because it's correspondence <laughs> no one has seen before. It's all organized chronologically. And there is so much in there that, that has been that has never been published before that we didn't know. And that was just gold for me. Yeah. And then I start looking at the artwork and I love what I'm seeing in there. But I'm like, this is weird. There's stuff that I know is in this collection, which I'm not seeing here. So I tell that. Uh, to the daughter of Sylvia Holland, and she says, "Well, let's wait. Let's wait for my daughter to to uh, to come a little bit later today, and we'll ask her." And so, her daughter arrives, and we ask the daughter, and she says, "Have you looked in this big trunk here in the room?" I'm like, "No, of course not. I wasn't going to stop like looking everywhere without your mother's authorization." She says, "Well, let, let's go together and look." And so we open the trunk, and the trunk is full of artwork, documents, <laughs> amazing stuff. And so I'm just so excited. And I'm there with a good friend of mine who's also a Disney historian, a person called Joe Campana. And he's on the terrace at that time, chatting with the daughter of Sylvia Holland. And so I, I go to the terrace to, to tell Joe how excited I am with the discovery. And I'm like, Joe, 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 you, you won't believe what I just found. He said, yeah, but have you looked at this big box here too? And I'm like, what big box? And he's like, there is this big box on the terrace. And importantly, we're in California, we're in Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I opened the box and it's another box, which is full of artwork and Disney material and so on. And so I, I stopped bringing stuff uh, at the surface and I look at one of the folders and I'm like, Joe, if this is what I think it is, I'm gonna stop crying. And so I, I take out some of the artwork and it's all of those pastel drawings by Kai Nielsen for an unproduced sequence for Fantasia called The Swan oh, of wow. Tuonella. And yeah. it's stuff that had not been seen since 1942 or 1941. And, and it's just the whole trunk is filled with stuff like that, Mary Blair's and Kai Nielsen and written documentation and so on and so forth. And so I just could not believe my eyes. It took us six months to scan everything. Uh, and you can see a lot of that in, in They Drew As They Pleased. So that's one story. The other story, working on that same volume of They Drew As They Pleased, I, was, uh, I contacted the, the family of Reda Scott. Now, Reda Scott is really famous in Disney history for becoming the first female animator at the Disney studio. And she became an animator on, on Dambi. And so, and she was before that a story artist. So I contact the family and they say, no, we, we have nothing uh, from our mother related to the Disney studio. I'm like, okay, you're sure? They're like, well, actually, there's one thing. Um, it's a few pages of autobiography autobiography called notes. Are you interested in that? I'm like, of course I'm interested in that. So <laughs> they send that to me and I read those notes. And I'm like, oh, it's interesting. After leaving the studio in the in the in the late 1940s, she left animation for 30 years, but then came back to animation in the 1980s. 
And I'm like, this is really interesting because if she did that, there are people still alive today who would have worked with her. So I tracked those down and I started interviewing them. And one of them said, did you, have you ever seen this, um, the layout that Redis Scott did with Disney artist, Willy Reitherman for a book project that she had with Reitherman in the 1940s? Uh, during the war. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful book about humanized planes and things like that. I'm like, no, this sounds fascinating. She He said she brought it to the studio at some point in the 1980s. Okay. So I'm like, this is really interesting. So I, I contacted the family again and I'm like, have you ever heard of this? They say, oh yeah, we have the layout at, at our place. I'm like, oh my God. And so they send me scans of the layout. Like if they have that, what else do they have? So I start nudging and probing and so on and so forth. And they say, okay, okay, I'm going to look. And a few weeks later, again, after like email after email of follow-ups and so on, he comes back and he says, well, I went to look in the attic and I did find a few uh, uh, story drawings from Bambi, but I did not think that was very relevant. I'm like, it's very relevant. That's the movie <laughs> your, 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 your mother is most famous for. Of course it's relevant. It's great. And I'm like, but if there is that, what else is there? And so by the end of the process, he had found 150 original drawings that no one had <laughs> seen before, including quite a few from an abandoned project from the 1940s where half of the, the story drawings were with him, the other half were with the Disney archives, and, and more and more and more. And so, uh, again, that helped build, build that, that chapter of, uh, about where the start with just stuff that no one had seen before. That's okay. Yes, it's official. You are Indiana Jones. I mean, you found a literal treasure chest when you found Holland's box of just you're like, oh, here's a closet. No, and here's a trunk and here's a box sitting out on the. I can't believe that. And then, you know, with Scott and you basically were telling them there's something there, right? Like you would not give up. You said there's something there. And then they find one thing after another and after another. And that's that is what historians do. But that is also what people who are passionate about what they're doing do, because you would not give up. And you like, I know there's something there. So that is so real quick. What book is that in? Is that story in one of these books you mentioned? Yes, it is. I mean, the the story of Red Scott, the story of Sylvia Holland, that's in the second volume of They Drew As They Pleased, The Hidden Art of Disney. Second volume. I'm writing this down because I'm probably going to order that that one first, and then I'm going to go into these other ones. All right, I'm sorry, I geeked out. It was history and research, and Indiana Jones was mentioned, so I have to let Lisa jump in a little bit. But thank you for sharing that, Didier. No, I'm I'm loving it. I'm I'm loving that heart of research. I guess I my my question is how do you avoid going down every rabbit hole when you see one of these things? Like it's it's mind blowing to me. Like I would I would want to do this and then research this and then this. How do you pick what? How do you pick what's most important? Well, there are a couple of things there, um, and that's that's actually a really interesting part of the story, which is that you have historians who start by saying, "I'm interested in this subject matter. Let's research it." Uh, I'm really interested in the whole of Disney history. Uh, and so I'm const- constantly researching Disney history. And I don't always know where there will be a good story to tell. 
And so it's when I stopped finding enough documents on a specific aspect of Disney history that I then decide, okay, there is enough of a critical mass here to really build a fun story. And what happens is you start with those documents that you have gathered and where you know that there is already a story. But then when you start building that story, you start finding all of the gaps. And then you're like, okay, how do I answer this question? Where is there material to answer this question? Where is there material to answer that question? I mean, recently I was working uh, uh, on some research about uh, a research trip that the Disney artists took uh, to Cuba in 1943 and then in 1944. And I gathered a lot of material about that those trips. But then I had all of those questions. Uh, they had met a composer called uh, Ernesto Lecuona, um, um, a Cuban uh, uh, artist. And I'm like, is there anything that Ernesto Lecuona remembered about that encounter? And so I started researching him. And uh, obviously he passed away quite a few years ago, but I started researching him and his career and that took me through a rabbit hole, which took me to a historian in Cuba, who was the biographer of Lecuena, who had published one specific letter where Lecuena mentioned a visit to the Disney studio. And so I'm like, okay, this is interesting. If there is that, is there more? And so finally, it's really, really tough to contact a historian in Cuba at the moment. I finally managed to contact him. And we exchanged some notes via WhatsApp. And he said, by the way, Lecuona also wrote a whole article about a meeting with Walt uh, in the mid-1940s, and he sent that to me. And it's stuff that has never been published before. And there are all of those details about this fairy tale dinner at a place in Hollywood with Walt, which no one had heard about, no one had read about. And it's not part of that chapter about Cuba that I just uh, finished drafting earlier today. Um, and so you have all of those rabbit holes that you, that lead you to way more personal accounts of what really happened at the time. Uh, that is what I'm most interested in. So you um, mentioned a couple of times the book, the book series. Actually, they they uh, drew as they pleased. So what was the thought behind doing that? That that was different than when you wrote the the origins of Walt Disney's uh, real-life adventures, what was the thought process going in into, hey, I want to look at the animators, and I want to look at, you know, because, you know, there's so many there's so many movies out there. How did you sure. navigate who you were looking at, what you wanted to accomplish in e- each of your books? So when it comes to um, the dress they pleased, um, there were a few... Um, a few elements that pushed me to to write that series of six books, um, six art books. Uh, the, the first one is uh, quite a lot had been written about the animators. What I was really interested in was the, the concept artist, the, the artist who worked in pre-production of all of those Disney movies. Why was I fascinated by that? Because it's stuff that you don't see on the screen. Uh, it's stuff that once it's done, uh, it stays in drawers uh, at the animation research library. Uh, and so I really wanted to get access to that material. I had always been fascinated by concept art, but I realized uh, for years and years that all of the concept art I would see in Disney history books would be the same concept art recycled over and over again. 
And I knew that at the animation research library, they had thousands of pieces of concept art, or even hundreds of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands of pieces of concept art, which we had never seen before. And I was like, this is really sad. It's beautiful artwork that has not been seen. I want to see it. And I want to tell the story behind the artist who actually created that artwork because they were amazing artists in their own right. And they deserve to have their names known uh, by everyone, frankly. And so it was both a selfish uh, sort of process where I'm like, I want to see that artwork. And then also a selfless one where I wanted to share that knowledge with, with everyone else. Uh, and so that's what pushed me to, to really focus on the, on the concept artists. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to pick the best of the best. And it's a very difficult choice there. Uh, for sort of each decade, uh, and then from the 1930s until practically today, and uh, and and I just um, find everything I can about them and about their career and about their art. And I still regret today not having covered one or two of the the most recent ones. Uh, but you know, sometimes you have to choose, and sometimes you make the right choices, and sometimes you don't. So it is what it is. Yeah, and we had um, on the show, we've had uh, former animators on um, a, couple, a couple episodes, and it, it, it's, it's really unique to hear their story or hear their side of how they've actually um, came up with a distinct, different concepts of what they were doing for the movie itself, you know. You, you look at it and you say, okay, maybe they had a minute part in the movie, but that little minute part in the movie is something that made the movie flow or gave it life. So do you have any stories of like hidden gems that you heard from um, animators that really, really opened your eyes about their line of work? So again, I mean, recently I haven't really focused on animators. Uh, I've, I've interviewed quite a few of animators about 10 years ago, 15 years ago for the Waltz People book series. But, but most recently I was really focused on those concept artists for uh, the, uh, the Drew As They Please book series. And then most recently, uh, the, the latest book that I released was the one on the origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures, which are stories of uh, especially uh, two cinematographers, Al and Elma Milot, who spent a full year in Alaska uh, to film the first of the True Life Adventures and the first of the People and Places, um, which is uh, on the one side, Seal Island, and on the other side, the Alaskan Eskimo. Uh, and so there, uh, when you when you find um, really the uh, uh, all of that material, you discover some really fun stories, like the fact that El Mamilot, when she went to uh, with her husband to Alaska in 1946, in the middle of nowhere at the time, in terrible, terrible uh, conditions and so on and so forth, she was pregnant at the time. So not only was she an adventurer, but uh, she was a pregnant adventurer, and and uh, and it's really it probably was pretty scary for her to to be in that environment. Um, in her condition. So, and, and you have all of those which is just, just great stories where the Milots just uh, uh, witnessed uh, a mass dance, which has been, uh, which had been uh, um, forbidden by the priest for years and years and years. And they, uh, the, the local uh, 
uh, native people uh, uh, perform that, that that mask dance for them, and then they, they throw away the masks, uh, and the Milots uh, recover those masks and then donated them to a museum in in Alaska. And the whole story from start to finish about why Walt went into that aspect of things, the educational features and uh, documentaries and how they were made and so on and so forth was utterly, utterly fascinating. And so uh, I, uh, I I love researching that the, the way I love researching all of the, the, the books that I'm working on at, at the moment. I got. I have to ask you, so before we started recording, you told us you've published nine books You've helped edit 45 books, if I'm getting the number correct, and you have like six or seven in the works like coming up. So you have been doing this for a while. You've done such a wide range, and you've talked to so many people uh, about Disney. And then you also mentioned that, <laughs> you know, that first book, it took Disney, what, four years to approve you getting, you know, the right to do that. I don't know exactly how it works with every book. You know, I can't assume that it took four years for every one of these books that you've written to get approved. So it sounds like you have a better relationship than, you, you know, from the very beginning. But if Disney was to call you and they like, hey, Didier, whatever book you want to write, anything you want, we are behind you 100 percent. We'll help you in every way we can. Is there a topic? There's like a dream book that you're like, I want to do this? Well, I'll answer this in, in two ways. Um, the, the first the first answer to that question, which is going to sound a little bit trite, but every book I'm working on at the moment is my favorite book. Right. That's obvious. Now, the other part of the answer, which is a bit more serious, is yes, there is, there is one specific topic, which is the Disney cartoons, the Disney shorts from the 1930s, uh, which is a topic that hasn't yet been covered properly and that needs to be covered uh, very, very thoroughly. But it's a very complicated project uh, because you need multiple volumes to do it right. Uh, you also need access to some documents that may or may not still exist. Um, there is especially one document, which is my holy grail, which uh, We'll see if I ever discovered the missing 25 pages, but it's really critical to that part of the research. And so that that would be uh, that will be at some point my my dream project, and it will probably happen one day. But it's definitely not going to be just a DDA project. It's going to be a collaborative project with at least two other historians, Lady Kaufman and David Gernstein. Uh, and yeah, it will require quite a bit of support also from the Disney archives and. Disney in general. You just using the term Holy Grail, I can tell that that is the passion project. Again, all of them, I can't choose which of my sons is my favorite. You can't pick between your kids, your books, right? I can't pick. But when you said Holy Grail, I was like, okay. So now that means, today, I, you know, to be honest, this is the first time getting to speak with you. And there's some books that you're mentioning. Like, okay, I have to get this book. But I'm going to be watching for that one because I know that that's the one that hopefully in a few years we'll see. And it's going to be your that's your baby. So I'm excited. I hope you get that. And if anyone listening has the Holy Grail, make sure you send it over. <laughs> that being said, Matt, the, the, the books that I'm working on at the moment are, are really, really exciting. Like uh, yeah. I'll, I'll give you just a few uh, just a few examples. There is one which is going to be released at the beginning of next year, which is about 
the trip that Walt Disney and his artists took to Latin America in 1941, a two and a half month trip around Latin America. And of course, they have there have already been things done uh, about that subject, mm -hmm. a documentary by Ted Thomas, a book by J.D. Kaufman. But what happened here is that J.D. Kaufman, Ted Thomas, and myself united our efforts to say, okay, can we give an account day by day of that trip with everything they did during the whole trip on a day by day basis and illustrated with photographs that no one had seen before? And that's what we did. Uh, there are 240 photographs that no one had seen before in that book. Uh, there is the exact route that they took everywhere. You have maps, uh, you have uh, documents, you have, it's just, it's mind blowing. It's just traveling with them uh, the whole trip uh, in 1941. And then obviously when I finished working on that project with JB and Ted, I said, you know what we need to do now? And they're like, no, what is it? I'm like, well, they went back to Latin America. They went back quite a few times to Mexico, and then they went to Cuba. We need to have a, a book about all of that too. And that's what I'm researching at the moment with them and with another historian called Jim Holyfield. And it's going to be even more mind-blowing because none of that story has even been told in, I mean, a little bit of that story has been told by J.D. Kaufman, but in just two or three pages in, in his book. And, and here it's gonna be a full book about it. And we, we've discovered literally hundreds of photographs that were not at the Disney archives that were in uh, private collections and in uh, uh, archives in Mexico City and, and archives everywhere. And it, it just, it's insane. And obviously I've got gotten access to local newspapers that are translated from the Spanish. And it's, it's a massive, massive amount of research uh, with volunteers on the ground and so on. And it's just, it's going to just open uh, our eyes to a whole new world of, of Disney information. Then I'll finish by, by mentioning just two more projects. One, it's a three book series about Mickey Mouse in the 1930s, but not, not on screen and not in comic books. And you're going to tell me what? three volumes about Mickey Mouse outside of the big screen and about outside <laughs> comic books. What is there to tell? Everything has been told about Mickey Mouse in the 1930s. Well, no. When I started researching that subject, I realized, you know what? The full story of the, the early Mickey Mouse clubs has not been told. The full story of the stage shows from the 1930s has not been told. And, and there were quite a few stage shows and yeah. quite a few photographs survived. The full story of, of Mickey Mouse at Christmas in the 1930s has not been told. And Thanksgiving parades. And you, you always see those same photographs of the Macy's parade in 1934. But there were way more parades everywhere in the U.S. and in Canada and, and for Carnival in Europe and so on and so forth. And it's just, it's insane. And it's stuff that no one had seen. And in a lot of cases, the photographs were just... Uh, slides or negatives that had not been scanned and that were just preserved in hidden archives in hidden places. And so bringing all of that back to the surface. And then finally, there is a story of Mickey Mouse on the radio, both in the US and in Europe in the 1930s. And there is, again, a mind-blowing story about all of the attempts of Walt Disney in the early 1930s to uh, produce a radio show and the, the the, the voices that actually recorded that radio show and, and the, the various attempts that didn't work and, and the full stories, uh, the full story of how 
finally the Mickey Mouse Theater of the Air uh, got on air in the US and then how the shows in Italy and the UK uh, got produced. Um, and so so that, that's, that's that series. And then the, the final project I'll mention, and that's a collaboration, by the way, with another historian called Libby Spatz. And then finally, one last project I'll mention is working, we're working with Jim Holyfield on the making of the movie Darby O'Gill and the Beatle People. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and again, it starts with a research trip to Ireland. In fact, a series of research trip to Ireland uh, with lots and lots and lots of photographs of Walt and his artists in Ireland that have never been seen before. And so it, it just, it, it, and, and I have other projects that I've completed uh, <laughs> that are about to move to layout, which I'm not going to get into because we're, we're running out of time. But right. this, this is just, it gives you a sense of, of what I'm working on at the moment. So you're saying I have some reading to do because every one of those projects that you just mentioned, I'm like, I want to read that. At, uh, so the the beginning of the year is when you're going to be releasing the book. I don't know if you told us the title, if you can, but the one where it's the day-by-day itinerary and what Walt did in Latin America and everything. So it's called um, Walt Disney and El Grupo in Latin America. Okay. And it should be released between the first and second quarter of, of next year. Uh, frankly, it depends a little bit on when uh, Disney uh, will give us their approval, but the the full layout is ready and uh, um, there might be a few small tweaks in the end, uh, but uh, it's it's ready to be released. That is amazing. Okay. I have some reading to do. You know, we definitely are going to have to have you back on because I feel like we're only scratching the surface of some of the stories that you have and that you could share with us. I've had a great time. I, I feel, I'm sorry, Barry and Lisa, if I geeked out a bit. I think this is the first time I've done that. And all of the episodes where I just couldn't contain myself because th- this was awesome. Is. Yeah. So thank you so much, Didier. I appreciate it. And Barry, you got to work your magic again and have him back on for another episode uh, so we could chat. Some absolutely. More. All right. Before we let you go, Didier, why don't you give us your um, website so people can uh, learn about your books and about you? Sure. So you should go to uh disneybooks.blogspot.com and uh, that will take you to the Disney History blog and you'll uh, find quite a bit about uh, Disney history and uh, about upcoming books about Disney history. So that's disneybooks.blogspot.com Absolutely. And you'll all want to check them out because this has been one fascinating interview and we definitely have to have you back on again. We want to thank you for coming on this episode, and we'll go ahead and wrap it up. We want to thank you all for tuning into another wonderful episode of Sharing the Magic. As always, please hit the follow button to stay up to date on the latest episode, and please tell all your friends to tune in wherever they listen to awesome podcasts like this one. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Sharing the Magic Pod. And until next time, keep sharing the magic.